I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking to Alta Sharo, a professor of law and bioethics at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. We're here to discuss the status and future of reproductive health care for women in the United States. Professor Sharo, in a current perspective article, White and colleagues described the situation in Texas where funding for family planning services was cut by two-thirds last year, leaving many poor women without access to various kinds of health care. The authors outline the rationale for public funding for family planning, and that includes prevention of negative health consequences, cost savings for government, protection of individual rights, and support for opportunities for women. As far as you can tell, what part of that rationale do Texas lawmakers disagree with? hard to know if they disagree with any of it, because to ask that question is, is to suggest this was a disagreement about facts or the interpretation of facts with a reasoned legislative decision uh, to adopt a policy that reflects their own understanding of cause and effect, for example, their own understanding of the uh, availability of family planning services and the effect on the rate of uh, healthy pregnancies in Texas. But there's very little evidence of that. Uh, what there is instead is evidence of a rejection of family planning for many of these very valuable local services simply because uh, there is a kind of ideologically driven effort to disfavor all things having to do with uh, women's sexuality absent the consequence of pregnancy and particularly absent the consequence of pregnancy that you would otherwise have discontinued through abortion. So I find it difficult to explain that there's a rationale that the Texas legislatures disagree with because I think it is beyond reason and rationale and purely about politics. One underlying question, and this may be ideological as well, is whether contraception in particular is a preventive health care measure and should therefore be covered and should be accessible. Under the Affordable Care Act, it is considered preventive care, and it must be provided without patient co-payments, but there's been a considerable backlash against that mandate. How do you characterize contraception's role in health care? I think contraception serves two purposes simultaneously. One is a classic uh, health care role in that the ability to plan the timing of your pregnancies and particularly the ability to space your pregnancies has been demonstrated over and over to have a very significant effect on the woman's ability to maintain good health during her pregnancies and uh, on the uh, healthy outcome for the babies that are born. Uh, we've seen this not only in developing countries, but in the United States as well. It's just a basic fact. So in that sense, contraception is part and parcel of the most basic kind of preventive care. But there's no question it's also something that allows people to enhance the quality of their personal lives. That is, they can have intimate relations uh, with their partner and not have to anticipate that pregnancy will necessarily follow. And that has been identified by opponents as the primary value of contraception. They view it as a lifestyle choice. Uh, they view it, therefore, as something that is elective or cosmetic, the way a facelift might be for an otherwise perfectly uh, normal-looking person. And on that basis, they'll argue there is really no need for the healthcare system to provide coverage for it. It ought to be an individually paid elective choice. I, I personally think this is a fundamental misunderstanding of the role that contraception plays. 
but it is a misunderstanding that's premised on the idea that sex itself is what is, in fact, a, an elective option. That is, if you don't want to get pregnant, don't have sex is the answer for those who'd oppose the contraceptive availability. And that's really a, a kind of a, an attitudinal difference about the role that sexuality plays in our lives and whether, in fact, it is really some uh, discretionary uh, icing on the cake or whether it really is part of the essential aspect of human existence. And taking it further, White and all explain that the clinics that are losing funding in Texas will no longer be exempt under federal law from another Texas law that requires parental consent for teens younger than 18 who seek contraceptive services. And that increases the sense that laws and funding decisions are being used to impose certain beliefs on women and teenage girls. Is that unusual? And is that an extension of the way policy decisions normally work in this country, or is it qualitatively different in your view? Well, we've had a long and interesting history in the United States debating about whether the role of government is to define and impose a particular kind of morality. Uh, Certainly, we've had many examples of it in the past, but I think now we're beginning to see some some retreat from it. I think in the gay rights movement, for example, you saw even at the level of the Supreme Court of the United States decisions uh, about the uh, impermissibility of criminalizing homosexual behavior solely because it was morally disfavored. And as a result, I do think that we're beginning to take a a new look at the appropriate role of government. And I think that really enhances the degree to which we recognize the anomalous situation we're in with women's reproductive choices. This is an area in which there's been very little effort on the part of the government to restrain itself. Uh, And no question about it, the constant efforts to make it difficult for women to obtain contraception, to terminate pregnancies that have ensued despite contraception, the difficulty in minors obtaining uh, help not only for contraception but also for prevention or cure of sexually transmitted diseases are all collectively linked to a moral view that would say women should not be having sex unless they're willing to have children that sex is about having children. It's not about an expression of your preferences or about pleasure. Uh, It's certainly not about women being independent of their partners. Uh, So it most definitely is an example of government pushing its, its particular morality. I think that we will still see this in many other in many other venues, but I do also think that the area of women's health and women's reproductive health in particular have always been quite vulnerable to this kind of interventionist approach. The authors note that the Texas law offers an opportunity to compare outcomes such as contraceptive use, unintended pregnancy, and abortion in Texas and in other states with less restrictive family planning policies. Do you think such research will be done? I hope so. Uh, I I do agree with the authors of the perspectives piece that there is a natural experiment to be conducted here. Uh, It will suffer from all of the usual problems that natural experiments do, specifically that the the controls are imperfect, the number of variables is great, the conclusions that one can draw will be limited. Uh, One will often be able to see uh, associations but not causal links. But I don't believe that that research is necessarily going to have a profound impact on policy. We have ample research that over and over has shown that 
Availability of contraception translates into fewer unintended pregnancies and translates into, therefore, fewer abortions, fewer premature births, fewer examples of maternal morbidity and mortality. We've also seen study after study that has clearly demonstrated that for about every dollar invested in contraceptive services through the federal government, you get back about $4 saved in otherwise necessary medical services for pregnancy, for childbirth, or for morbidities associated with them. And despite all that research, we still have examples of what's going on in Texas. I do believe that, uh, as noted as noted before that uh, in, in the question about the whether the Texas lawmakers disagreed with part of these rationales, I think this is an example of an area of public policy that is simply fact-resistant and is really driven much more by ideology than any sober analysis of data. In that regard, insofar as the Texas law's purpose was to try to limit access specifically to abortion, what do you see as the legal implications of that move? It's interesting. If the purpose was to limit access to abortion, it's actually not going to accomplish much of its purpose since many of these entities that are losing their funding didn't provide abortion services anyway. So all they're doing is reducing access not only to contraception but to mammograms, to screening for sexually transmitted diseases that, by the way, ironically, can render women infertile. So if the goal was to increase the number of healthy pregnancies, you're certainly not doing that. Um, Texas is already a place where it can be very difficult to get an abortion. Distances are great. Abortion providers are scattered. And uh, we're also now beginning to see difficulty in getting abortions in neighboring states. Mississippi has recently passed laws that will put out of business, at least for the foreseeable future, uh, one of its last remaining abortion-providing clinics. So what will be the effect legally? I think... It's simply that women will go other places for abortions where they are still legal. It may put a little pressure on neighboring states that are similarly opposed to abortion to uh, increase the rate at which they pass abortion-hostile regulations and laws. It will not, however, touch the fundamental question of whether or not it is still legally permissible to obtain an abortion, Uh, and nor will it touch the Roe v. Wade decision that says the state cannot outright ban abortion, at least until you've got a moment where the fetus is viable. In another recent Perspective article, Lisa Harris argued that the notion of physicians acting out of conscience has inappropriately become exclusively associated with the refusal to perform abortions, whereas professionals who provide abortion services also do so often as a matter of conscience. Do you agree? And If so, how would you reframe the discussion? I do agree with Lisa Harris. I think it was a very important article. I think it's one that reminded us all that conscience is not something limited to a particular end of the political spectrum or to a particular religious tradition. That said, debates around conscience tend to occur when somebody wants to do something that runs against the zeitgeist and against the the general practice of the professional community or the general public. So in the 1960s, when abortion was widely illegal uh, or legal under very, very limited circumstances, there were many physicians, as Lisa Harris has noted, who felt as a matter of conscience that they needed to provide a service to their patients as a matter of, of the duty of care. 
the zeitgeist then changed, and uh, it became the norm that doctors ought to provide abortion services that states can't forbid abortions from occurring in the post-Roe versus Wade era. And so slowly we begin to see the rise of the uh, conscience-based claim that I don't have to do this. That is, I'm going to, again, I'm going to go against a new zeitgeist and a new grain. I think now the, the conversation nationally around abortion has become so uh, hostile uh, it has become so much the norm to say that abortion is fundamentally bad, it shouldn't be done, it should be done only in the most unusual circumstances, that once again we flipped back to the old setting in which those who think that abortion is an appropriate form of care for a patient are in the minority, and so it, it once again becomes appropriate for them to claim the conscience-based refusal to go along with the, with the general tide. Uh, I, I think she's reminding us that these things change over time because it's not the conscience issue that changes. It's the background against which the conscience claim is being made. Are there legal roots to shifting that presumption from conscientious refusal of care to conscientious delivery of care? There would be. I think some of them would be difficult because uh, in the law, generally, it is more difficult to require people to do things than it is to simply forbid them from doing things. Easier to tell me that I may not cross the street than it is to tell me I must cross the street. This action-inaction distinction runs throughout many areas of law. So to change the legal rules to require that physicians provide abortion care or provide some something related to it, would run into more obstacles in the kind of culture of law. That said, there are some things within that would be easier than others. It would be far easier to require that doctors provide an appropriate referral if they choose not to provide a service, partly because this is what we always did before for doctors who, who chose not to provide a service. It's only recently that we're seeing this expansion of refusals to include a refusal to refer or even a referral, even a refusal to inform people that there are legal options available. But second, because even though there are examples of the law saying you cannot compel somebody to say something they don't believe, in other words, there are restrictions on compelling speech, in this particular case, what you're talking about really is defining what is malpractice or not malpractice. And the failure to refer has often in the past been appropriately viewed as essentially abandoning the patient. And patient abandonment has always been considered part of medical malpractice. So at the state level, to go back to the state definitions of malpractice and to look at patient abandonment and informed consent and to clarify what needs to be told to patients and not, I do think is going to be possible. Last thing, we've certainly seen states that are passing anti-abortion legislation, forcing physicians to provide information to patients, even when the physicians don't agree with it, such as the legislation recently passed that would require physicians to tell patients that there's some there's some uh, increased rate of uh, depression and suicide due to abortion, something that's not supported by any scientific fact, but nonetheless they're required to say this, and that was upheld. So this question about compelled speech in the context of what is appropriate medical practice is, is one where there might be some room. The Republican Party platform has a strong anti-abortion plank that does not include exceptions for rape or incest, although presidential candidate Mitt Romney says he does support such exceptions. 
If the Republicans won the White House, what would you expect to see in terms of reproductive rights in the country? Well, I think it's hard to know without really speculating also on the, the complexion of the Congress. I think that as long as the Senate has at least 41 abortion rights supporters, and that roughly maps on to Democrats versus Republicans, not perfectly, then you have a Senate that's capable of filibustering any congressional bill that's sent to the president that would put any kind of federal restrictions on family planning funding or on uh, funding for any services having to do with reproductive health. Please note that nobody has ever suggested that we would move forward toward funding abortion services, so there's no need to talk about efforts to stop that funding. It doesn't exist. That means that in terms of a Republican White House, the power of the president is going to be limited more toward things that can be handled entirely through the executive branch. Things like uh, a policy to defund, for example, embryonic stem cell research, which uh, is the position that the Romney campaign has taken because of the way in which the feelings around the use of embryos track with the, the feelings around the destruction of fetuses. And the often recognized connection between public attitudes of tolerance toward embryo destruction possibly leading to tolerance of destruction of fetuses via abortion. There's also things like foreign policy areas where uh, the reinstating of our so-called uh, Mexico City policy, which restricted our funding of organizations that were providing essential health services and contraceptive services, but not funding them even if separately with entirely different money they also had anything to do with abortion service. We could re The president could reinstate that kind of policy as well. But all that said, I think the action is going to continue to remain on the state level. We've got very active state legislative initiatives that range from restrictions on even private insurance covering abortion services to forced consultation by patients with anti-abortion so-called pregnancy crisis centers to uh, forced interviews for detection of possible coercion to restrictions on abortions based on their purported motivations, such as in Arizona, where uh, a woman whose abortion is purportedly motivated by the fact that she doesn't like the race of the child that she'll be giving birth to, presumably because she and her partner are of different races, could be used as a basis for a doctor refusing to perform the abortion. There's so much creative opportunity out there, and, now we, haven't, and we haven't even touched the, uh, the kind of things that are going on in places like Virginia and Mississippi where the, the physical construction of the clinics is being altered or the uh, medical privileges of the personnel are being altered in a way that makes abortion clinics difficult or impossible to, produce, to, to maintain. So many creative options on the state level and so much success working at this much more homogeneous level because within each state, much more likely you've got some real concentration of, of public opinion in one direction or another that I think it's a much more fertile ground for activity. Thank you, Professor Charo. You're very welcome. My pleasure.